Well, thanks, Adam and Sydney and uh, everybody who's doing hard work on that. Hey, um, I kind of got my two cents on this whole thing, too. Um, we were at a dinner here for uh, parents of high schoolers in the youth program around here, and Adam was there, and uh, the other youth guy, Jason, was there. And maybe Jason was having a weak moment, you know, where the youth guy kind of really tells a bunch of parents what he really thinks. That's what I kind of think was going on. Probably not. But... Um, he said, you know, you parents, you don't have any problem uh, shelling out hundreds of dollars for basketball uniforms and sports and lacrosse stuff, and you'll do that for any kind of program or send them to a sports camp or whatever, but when it comes to the God stuff, now you make them all go out and earn their own money, you know, like there's something sort of sacred where they got to go out and really struggle and sacrifice, and then, you know, but, but it's okay to just shell it out for sports. And he's like, just might want to think about, like, when it comes to the God stuff, maybe shell it out for that, and then he didn't say this, but, and then go earn it for the other stuff, but I thought, oh, that was me. I'm the parent who says, oh, you got to earn it for the God stuff, but I'll just lay it down, you know, when it comes to lacrosse or swimming or something like that, so uh, anyway, he's talking to me, so thanks, Jason, for messing up my world, but um, so just think about that as we try and invest in our kids around here. Well, everything that's been talked about today uh, I'm going to give you the heavy teaching on it. I'm going to give you the biblical teaching on it. And uh, so the plan is kind of aligned here where the teaching kind of syncs up with Sydney's story and the gas cans and the whole bit. And uh, because we're heading into a season called Lent, the 40 days heading up to Easter, and we'll talk about that more. And we even have Ash Wednesday this Wednesday uh, at 645 up here, about a 25-minute service that we'll do uh, to begin it. But let's begin. Uh, I'm, if you had a pencil there or whatever, and you want to write down three scriptures that you want to look up on your phone or in your Bible or whatever, here are the three scriptures for the morning. I'll give them to you now because we're not putting them up much elsewhere. Matthew chapter 4, Matthew chapter 4, 1 Kings chapter 18, 1 Kings 18. I got these out of order. So Matthew chapter 4, 1 Kings 18, and then Exodus 3. That's really the second one, Exodus 3. So 1 Kings 18 and Exodus 3. So pencil those on the margin of your program there or whatever, and uh, you'll see these. So if you want to look at this stuff yourself, you don't have to look it up, but if you want to, it's there for you. Let's begin then with Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God... Command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it's written. One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it's written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. And the devil left him and suddenly angels came and waited on him. The church, everyone, is in the business of changing lives. We have a lot of things we're trying to do around here, but in the broadest picture, we're trying to change lives. We, we want people who are wise in the ways of money. We want people who are wise and 
and know uh, what their vacation and what their calling is in life. We want people wise about hobbies and fun and entertainment and politics. We want people to understand and be smart about parenting and conflict and emotional health and people who can weather the storms of life, that they know why they're here, people who live by the true north of Jesus instead of by the the whimsical breezes of society and culture and whatever else is going on out there in, in the news. The church wants you and I to live out a life based upon the Bible that points us to the life of Jesus. Basically, the church church wants you and I to be miniature Jesuses going through this world with the love of God for other people. The gospel came to you on its way to somebody else. That's what we're trying to do. This morning, I'm gonna give you one of the most critical tools that I can think of in scripture. After 40 years of ministry, I think I have arrived at it, the fact that this is probably the most significant tool in the Christian life. I've never really said that sort of thing, but I, and I didn't actually even write it down, but that's what I've become convinced of. The thing I'm gonna tell you about is the one most transforming thing in the Christian life. It is this one thing that all branches of the faith, Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant have embraced, not so much the evangelical branch of Protestantism, though, people like us. Somehow we've ignored it, but the others have discovered this tool and used it. Even other faiths, Buddhism and Hinduism, have touched on this discipline, this tool. And even secular people understand it to a lesser degree. What is this one tool that is so powerful for transformation? It is the desert. The desert. The desert transforms people into the likeness of Jesus. The desert functions a lot like those songs in Disney musicals, you know? Like every time somebody sings in a Disney musical, something changes inside of them. It's like that that one Frozen, you know, which I know a lot of you parents of young girls have watched so many times that you just sing it in your sleep. But nonetheless, when she starts to sing, let it go, let it go, and then the cold doesn't bother her anymore, she's making a big change, right? You can't change your life in a Disney show or in any musical unless you sing. When you sing, you change. Whether it's Les Miserables, you know, who am I? Who am I? I don't know who I am. Well, when I start singing, I'm going to find out who I am. I'm Jean Valjean. I'm 24601. You know what I mean? Every time you start singing in a musical or in a Disney show, you change. If you don't want to change, don't sing, because you're going to change. You can't help it. You're going to let it go after that every time. That's just the way it works. You see, the desert functions just like that. Every time in the Bible when somebody goes to the desert, they change. They can't help it. And so I want to take you through a little bit of this sort of thing. So let's begin with Moses, who's transformed in his desert experience. The year's probably around 14 or 1600 B.C., before the Common Era. And if you remember, uh, real short and real quick, Moses' story, you remember that he was raised as Pharaoh's uh, adopted son. He's, a, he's, a, he's an Egyptian prince. And the Hebrew people are the slaves of the Egyptians. They had been that way for some 400 years. Now, Moses grows up, and he's a prince, and he's very powerful, and he sees another Egyptian employee, this overseer, beating a Hebrew slave. It infuriates him because Moses knows that 
he's actually Hebrew, he just doesn't talk about it. He kills the overseer that's beating the Hebrew slave. Well, Pharaoh finds out that he killed an Egyptian and Pharaoh starts seeking Moses' life. So what's Moses do? He runs. He runs to the farthest end of the earth, out into the middle of the desert towards the Saudi Arabia, modern-day Saudi Arabia, out towards the desert. He runs as far as he can, fleeing, trying to hide from Pharaoh and the fact that he's a murderer, that he killed another human being, and he feels so terrible about it. Then one day, cue the Disney music, he leads uh, his flocks that he's watching because he'd become a shepherd out into the desert, further and further out there. You see, he'd gained a whole new identity. He had married and had a kid. No one knew that he was an Egyptian prince anymore. He'd lost that identity long ago. He was now living as a foreigner in a foreign land, and he's shepherding sheep and goats goes further and further out into the desert and he comes to a mountain that he'd never come to before called Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb was called the mountain of God. And an angel puts a burning bush up in the mountain and Moses has to go check it out. Now, at the burning bush, Moses encounters God. In the desert, God reveals his plan to Moses that he is supposed to go to the one place where they are seeking his life, Egypt, and set his people free. In the desert, Moses discovers his calling for life. He understands what he's supposed to be doing with his entire life. This is why he was put on the earth. He doesn't know it until he goes to the mountain of God out in the desert. And if you'll permit me a little bit of therapeutic license here, a little psychoanalysis about Moses. Moses has been hiding his whole life. He's been living a lie his entire life. He's confused. He's been confused about his identity. He's a Hebrew by birth, adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, and raised as an Egyptian prince. And now he's spent a, a, a whole, you know, 40 years thereabouts actually living as a foreigner. He's the original nowhere man. Just trying to dis disappear for the rest of his life and avoid who he really is, and avoid God and the fact that he's a sinner. But alone in the desert, Moses is found by God and confronted with who he is, and he's given a new identity, who he's really supposed to be. And so Moses goes on to become one of the great liberators of a nation. He's actually a nation builder. This is the nation of Moses. He does so without an army, only led out of Egypt with God and takes a whole people out of slavery into the promised land. And then here's just a little bit of extra tip, tidbit of information. While they're out in the desert, which was really only a three-week journey from Egypt to the promised land, they take 40 years, right? One last time, Moses is called to go out into the desert. This time he arrives at Mount Sinai. On Mount Sinai, for 40 days and 40 nights, Moses is up there alone. And God gives him the Ten Commandments, the beginning of the law, the Jewish law, the thing that we still carry around today in our Bible that you probably have on your iPad or phone.
things happen in the desert that redefine who somebody is supposed to be. All right, that's Moses. Let's fast forward then 600 years to about 875 BCE, before the Common Era, okay? Elijah. This is Elijah's story. Israel had become a great nation after Moses had taken him into the promised land. David had been king and all sorts of other things like that. But things were not going so well now. They were messing up bad in Israel. Bad leadership. One of those bad leaders was King Ahab, not to be confused with the Arab. This is King Ahab who made a political alliance marriage to Queen Jezebel. Queen Jezebel was not a Hebrew. She brought with her her own gods, and they were idols. And Queen Jezebel hated the God of the Hebrews, and she was all bent on getting them out, destroying the faith of the Hebrew people, of the Jews. She'd killed all of the prophets of God and replaced them with her own prophets. There was only one prophet left, Elijah. And so it comes down to a big showdown. Elijah says, you bring your prophets, and I'll bring my God. And so there's a big showdown right there because there's a famine in the land and it says, you know what? If your gods can end the famine, great. Then we'll all worship your God. If my God, Yahweh, the God that the Jews believe in, if he, if he wins, then you'll end the famine that way too. Well, if you know how the story goes, uh, Elijah wins famously. All the prophets of, of Baal, Jezebel's prophets, they all are destroyed. Well, of course, you know, Jezebel... Being uh, crazy is infuriated by this because there's nothing worse than a crazy woman unless she's a crazy queen woman. Then it's really, really bad, okay? So I'm just saying she sends everybody she knows to kill Elijah. The entire nation is supposed to kill Elijah. So Elijah runs. And where does he run? To the desert. He's running and he's running. He's running for days and days and days. And he's hiding out in the desert and he's afraid and he's exhausted and he's starving. So much for his great big spectacular thing of beating Jezebel. And an angel shows up with food for Elijah. And that food sustains Elijah for the next 40 days. There's that 40 days thing again. It's like some sort of Lord of the Rings limbus bread, you know, from the elves or whatever. I don't know how powerful this stuff is, but somehow he could eat this stuff and just keep on going. So he flees where? Further and further into the desert. And he comes to this one mountain. Hmm, which mountain is it? It's the mountain of God, Mount Horeb, the same one that Moses was at. And he climbs up the mountain, and there he goes into a cave. And the voice of God comes to him when he's out in the desert, that moment of transformation, and God asks him the same question that he's asking you and me. What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? See, God's still asking the same question to you and me. What are you doing here? We never hear that question because we're all too busy. We're running around like a chicken with our head cut off. We never have the time to listen to God tell us or ask us, what are you doing here? When was the last time you made time to hear this question for God and for your own life? What are you doing here? Well, the word of the Lord tells Elijah to go stand at the mouth of the cave because God's going to pass by. And so if you've ever read this story, three spectacular things happen because Elijah doesn't get his answer yet to what are you doing here. He doesn't give an answer. And God doesn't tell him what to do. 
So Elijah is waiting for the answer from God. And first thing that happens is there is a rock-splitting wind. I don't even know what a rock-splitting wind is. I've never thought about a wind so powerful that could split rocks, but that's the way the Bible describes it. There's such a powerful wind that's tearing the mountain apart. But God is not, the word of the Lord is not in this rock-splitting wind because next thing comes is a huge earthquake. And the earthquake is trying to tear down the mountain, the, the stronghold of Elijah where he's hiding in the cave. But the voice of the Lord's not in the earthquake. And after that comes a firestorm. But God's voice is not in the firestorm either. And after the rock-splitting wind and the earthquake and the fire, 1 Kings 19 says, there came the sound of sheer silence. Some translations say a gentle whisper but it's really hard to translate. It is a deafening silence, a crushing presence of God's silent voice. And one more time, in that moment, God asked Elijah, what are you doing here? And he says, I've been so zealous for the Lord. They've killed all the prophets and I'm the last one and they're trying to kill me as well. Well, God tells him what he's going to do with the rest of his life, how he's going to save the nation. You see, in the desert, everyone, the reason why it's so transforming for you and I when we get ourselves alone with God is because God knows the one thing that you don't know about your life. God already knows the one thing that you need to hear about your life. And we don't know it because we haven't taken the time to listen to God. And the desert provides the place and the space where we can listen to God. In the desert, all the nonsense passes us and we're only left with our fears and our doubts and our anxiety and the fact that we don't think anybody loves us and God. And you put all of our mess together with the presence of God and good things are going to happen. All right, fast forward one last time to Jesus' life. It's now about 30 A.D. in the Common Era. Matthew chapter 4, which we read at the beginning. Jesus is a grown man, and he goes out into the wilderness to the Jordan River to be baptized by John the baptizer, John the Baptist. And as Jesus is coming out of the water, a voice from heaven says this. It says, it says this is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. This huge announcement that this is the Son of God and He is going to be the Messiah and He's going to save the nation and God is well pleased with Him. It can't get any better than that at that moment. Surely at this moment, Jesus' course is set. No further instruction is needed for Jesus or anybody else. It's very clear what's happening. But uh-uh, not so, not just yet. Because in that moment, the Spirit of God leads Jesus where? Out into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. And there he fasts. The Spirit of God leads him there. Notice that Jesus did not decide to go to the desert by himself. And this is exactly the way our relationship with God works. You see, God leads you there. See, God is more in favor of you and me than we are for ourselves. You understand that your desire for God comes from God. God is the hound of heaven. 
God, um, you have a God-shaped vacuum in, in you, like Blaise Pascal said, you know, hundreds of years ago. And only God will fill that God-shaped vacuum in you. Your desire for God comes from you. Your thoughts of even coming to church this morning came from God. God is more in favor of you than you are in favor of yourself. He's chasing you. And so the Spirit leads Jesus out into the desert where Satan comes and tempts him. You want to be a celebrity, Jesus? You want to be famous? You want to be helpful, oh, son of man? You want to feed people bread? You want to turn rocks into bread? You want to be, you know, so, oh, so useful to everybody? You want to be like Moses, manna in the desert? Or do you crave power, O great Messiah, O Savior of the world? You want to run everything and rule everything? You want to have the ring of power, so to speak? You see, in the desert, all of our best temptations are faced up to us. All of our false props, all of the lies we listen to, all of our temptations are there conveniently waiting in the desert for God and you and I to deal with. In the desert, we confront our fake self. In the desert, God holds a mirror up to us, and sometimes in that mirror reveals the fact that we just need to be loved, that we're just running around so, so scared of being loved, of being intimate with anybody or anybody, anyone. And sometimes the mirror reveals our shame and our guilt that was nailed to the cross, but we just don't believe it. We'll say all the right words like, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ, he died for my sins, and blah, 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 and we actually don't even ever live that way. Sometimes we find out we're just so tired and busy and that we're living out lives of quiet desperation, as Thoreau said. A poor player who struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. A tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. And you think, like, that's me. I'm just living life. I'm just going through the motions. I wake up, I do that thing, and then I go to bed. I do it again the next day. Ad nauseum. Others of us live such very blessed lives. Nothing goes wrong at all. Actually, everything's great. We've got money in our pocket. We live in a nice warm house. We get to go fun places and we eat really great food. Nothing really goes wrong with us at all. And yet, for some reason, we can't seem to ever stop. We just want more. Somehow, we've, 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 begin, we've become addicts to our own success. And we just lack gratitude. We just lack gratitude. And the fact that we understand that we're actually a gift to the world and that you were given things so that you could actually give to other people, that you are a gift to mankind, to humanity. But without a time of reflection, we just fail to count our blessings. I know a young woman, Christian, brilliant, well-behaved, attractive, and from a really good family. Everything's gone great in her life. She's got one problem. She's depressed. And so she started going to a counselor and she read a few books and nothing was really changing until her counselor told her to do this one thing. I want you to take a journal or a piece of paper and write down 10 things that you're grateful for every day. 10 things that you're grateful for every day. Write them down on a piece of paper. After just a couple of weeks, the depression lifted. She needed an attitude of gratitude, a very simple prescription that most of us who live in affluent suburbia fail to understand. 
We fail to see God all around us, and gratitude brings the fact that God is taking care of us all the time. That the simple things in life, like chips and salsa, are actually a gift from God. And we fail to help others because we're not, we don't feel so comfortable with ourselves. Because we're still so desperate, living these lives of quiet desperation, that we never feel like we have anything to give away. It's just all about us. And we begin to do the worst thing and break the very first commandment. That you should have no other gods other than God alone. And you become your own idol. Because you're so needy. You see, all of us need this regular rhythm of going to the desert. And that's why like, uh, we take our students on these trips to the Badlands or even to what I'd call the desert of a big city because there you're so displaced and everything's so, you know, garsh, you know, look, ain't it big, that it actually displaces you enough to where you can understand that you're just a small person and that God holds you in the palm of his hand. I lead retreats around here and take people off to a monastery so they can just get some space. It's, it's actually kind of strange to think that, that we actually need to pay for time to get away and have some peace and solitude. Somebody came up to me after the second service and said, you know what, I had the time and yesterday I baked bread. I didn't talk about baking bread, but she just said I baked bread. And she said it was so weird because I sat there thinking, I don't have time to do this. And yet as I did it and I had to keep returning the bread and waiting for it to rise and so forth, she said I just slowed way down. And I didn't have any idea how the bread was going to turn out. She watched herself bake bread and realized she was moving way too fast. Such a simple thing, so healing. When we slow down and incorporate some sort of desert into our lifestyle. We all need this regular rhythm away from the routine of life. That's what the desert provides. So what we do is we invent miniature desert experiences, okay? Whether it's a retreat, whether it's a quiet time, whether it's a time of surrender, whether it's getting up early in the morning, and we're coming into a season of Lent here where all of us are going to take a, a grand experiment together, all of Christianity, by the way, and we're all going to try and get really focused on our relationship with God and try and create a miniature desert in our life. Some of us are going to stop... Uh, the internet. Some of us are going to, you know, put down the clicker and stop watching television. Other, others um, are just going to try and take a Saturday morning for an hour or so and read a book and journal and write a letter to God or to relatives or something like that. Some of you need this time. Some of you dads need to reestablish your fatherhood. And this happens when you realize you're God's son, that God treats you like a prince because you're a child of God. How do you know that unless you stop and realize that, that, that God is your father? God is your parent. How do you know how to be a father to your sons and daughters unless you spend the time with God and that you get stable and get away? Some of you are artists and you don't have time to create because you don't have the time or their inspirations because you haven't made the desert time to actually find any inspiration to make your art. We need, you need to go hang out with the creator, the original artist. Take the time to go for a long walk. Walk through the country. Some of you love competition and game and sports, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. And, you know, on some deep level, you know, what's really going on is you're dealing with death and life. That's what sports actually does, by the way. They say, psychologists say we're all dealing with death and life when we play sports. So tonight we're all going to have some great ritual of, you know, 
pretend dying and rising again with when when the Broncos win. So uh, because I want to get rid of Peyton Manning. Speaking of that, anyway, all right, I'm off of that. Um, because I think if he wins, he'll stop. So yeah, it's good for the Chiefs. That's what I'm actually after. So. Um, but some of you love competition so much. And yet it makes you more angry than fun. And you've, you've now wrapped your own self and your own identity up with, on whether or not your team or your kid is going to win. And you've messed it up. It's not fun anymore. Moses, Elijah, and Jesus all end up in the desert. How come we don't? Each one experienced the death of something. And that's what really ultimately happens in the desert. What's going on, once again, psychologically, is you're pretending a death, or as the spiritual people like to say, practice death daily. Not literally, of course, but what really happens is, is of course, you need to do a little dying each and every day. I think this is exactly what Jesus taught. Lose your life so you can find it. Take up your cross and come follow me. Who of you, by, by worrying for a single hour, think you can add even a, 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 any, an hour to your span of life? On and on, Jesus is saying, like, stop worrying. Come to me and do a little dying. And you will be alive. In the desert, you'll find out who's cheering for you. Take some time to be quiet. This Wednesday is Ash Wednesday, like I said. If the servers want to come forward for communion, uh, now's a good time. For years, Lakeland has observed Lent. As a matter of fact, I started it around here when nobody was doing it. Because a church like us, we don't do Lent. As a matter of fact, it started right back there in that corner with four people one night. And we didn't have any idea what we were doing. But let me tell you what this thing has turned into. The problem around here at Lakeland at the moment is that Lent has turned into one thing. We've made the fatal error, folks. So there's a little family talk here. We have turned it into, what are you going to give up for Lent? This is exactly the thing that evangelical Protestant Christians have tried to avoid. So they just even didn't even do Lent. And we have fallen into the pit of what are you going to give up for Lent? That is not the right idea for Lent. You do not just give up chocolate for Lent. God doesn't care about whether or not you eat chocolate or give up soda. It's not that he hates chocolate or anything like that. I don't think God has anything against chocolate. It's just that that's not the point. The point is, is it's time to give up lackluster faith and draw close to God. And it's a terrible thing when we turn Lent into some sort of like self-punishment. And moreover than that, we don't even buy into it. And it's like this melodramatic thing. I'm giving up chocolate, oh God. No chocolate for me. I'm saintly now. It's like, what a crock. Instead, there is a different way to go about it. Go to the desert. Create a desert. An hour on a Saturday morning. Get up early on a Sunday morning. Every morning, I'm going to talk about this when we get done with communion, when we get back together here, about what the plan would be. But for right now, we come to the communion table to commune with Jesus and others. And communion, you know, is like a little miniature symbol of this desert because every time you get up out of your seat, you're making a statement that says, 
that says that, Jesus, that God's going to ask you, what are you doing here? Who are you? What do you believe? And who do you belong to? And you're saying when you get up out of your seat, I belong to this people. And that body and that blood of Jesus represented by that bread and that cup, they belong to me and I belong to them. This is my identity. It's clear in this one little moment. This is the food and drink that sustains me. The word of God, these people, that desert. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body. This is my body, and it's for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup, and after supper, he said, this is the cup of the new covenant, my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again, Jesus says. You remember who you belong to. You are those people. Those people who belong to God and to each other. And so it's a proclamation. And that's why when we get up and we do this physically and you actually eat something and you drink something, it's all a symbol that says who you belong to. And you reaffirm that for one more week, you belong to God. And God is for you. Would you stand with me, please, as we pray as Jesus taught us to pray? Join me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Save us from the time of trial and deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. And now, everyone, we proclaim that mystery of faith, that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Alleluia. The gifts of God for the people of God. Each day, may Jesus Christ be as real to us as this food and drink. Come whenever you're ready, tear off a piece of bread, dip in the chalice, consume it then. You may go to one of the side tables and kneel at the cross if you need to or go back to your seat. And now, O oh God, you have fed us with spiritual food and you're about to send us out into the world as light and salt to be Jesus to those around us at home, in the workplace, in the neighborhood, in the marketplace. Every place we go this week, God, you want us to be you. May we do our very best and may we trust you. May we contemplate when will we put in time for the desert. And we all said, amen. Well, just real quick to wrap things up, uh, take out this insert that you got when you came in. It's an insert about Lent, which is this Wednesday, 645, is the Ash Wednesday service. There'll be the imposition of ashes where you're reminded that from dust you came and to dust you shall return. It is a little death that we practice. And on this sheet, uh, here's a little bit of an idea for kick-starting your Lent, okay? So I'm kind of ranting and raving against just giving up some food item or whatever. Instead, there's sort of a four-part rhythm to this in two couplets. Stop and start, give and receive. So on the back, that's what it says. So here's what I'm suggesting. Stop 
the usual voices and replace it, start with God's voice. So give up some news media. Give up some typical news media. It might be sports radio. It might be, especially in in an election year, this is a tough one to do. Give up all of these voices that are mostly telling you to fear. So give up the world's voice and replace it. Start, number two, start listening to the voice of God in Scripture. Start reading the Gospel of Luke in place of it. So if you get up in the morning like I do to read the paper and drink coffee, I'm going to stop reading the paper. And instead, I'm going to read a chapter in Luke. Luke is 24 chapters long, so I'm going to run out. I have to figure out something to do with the last 16 days. I'll just, I got a short memory. I'll probably just start reading it again. So um, kids, you guys can like maybe give up some usual media outlet or a game or a console or something like that if you feel like it. But the important part is what you stop is, is not nearly as important as what you replace it with, the start. And then here's the second thing. Number three, give. Work on how you can give something away to a stranger or someone. So you pay for someone's meal behind you in the drive-thru, okay? So this would be a far better idea than giving up French fries. Just pay for somebody else's French fries and let them deal with it. So, you know, uh, or... Uh, Help somebody with, a, with their groceries or whatever at the store and hope they don't call the police on you or whatever if we're trying to abduct them or whatever it might be. But do something, random acts of kindness is what it is. is. The point is to give it away. I know there's a real controversial thing around here like about whether or not you should give away money to the homeless people at the top of the ramp. I just keep saying like, yeah, I know it's not ideal. They're probably going to use the money for something else or somebody's creating fraud. Who cares? It's about you. It's about you giving away the money. If you're not already giving away two bucks to City Union Mission or to the Salvation Army, I guarantee you it's all about you, okay? So do some random acts of kindness. Then number four, receive. Receive gratitude. As an act of receiving what God's given us, we're gonna ask you to do this. Take a Sharpie or a pen or something like that and take a good old classic two-by-two Post-it note, yellow Post-it note, okay? That's not really important. It's not in the Bible that you have to use a yellow one or anything like that. But just grab a post-it note and write on there single words of things that you're grateful for. Um, I started my very first one. I was standing there looking out the back window in the kitchen. I just wrote down, I'm, I'm grateful. I just wrote the word birds. I like watching the birds in wintertime. I, somehow it reminds me that I'm not going to die this winter and freeze to death. So I don't know. But so, pretty soon... I was thankful when the blue sky came out and that one came down. Then my wife started getting sticky notes and we started sticking them on the kitchen walls. So here's what we got. We got a family of four. There's 40 days of Lent. That's 160 post-it notes that are going to be stuck in our kitchen by the end of this thing. It's going to look like some sort of conspiracy theory in there or whatever. So, but I'm asking you to do the same sort of thing. Same sort of thing. We need an attitude of gratitude and just take each day and write on a post-it note something that you're grateful for and stick it on the wall or the cabinets or whatever. Or put it on the dash of your car. Don't put it on the windshield. I don't want to get the lawsuit. So uh, just let's try and receive gratitude that we can get an attitude of gratitude. So that's sort of the suggestion for this year. Everybody got it? It's kind of a fun idea. Stop, start, give, receive. That's kind of the plan. All right, would you stand with me, please? And leave with these. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you, be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of Christ, amen.